Welcome to the Aspen Music Festival and Schools High Notes, a weekly discussion panel with the great artists that come to Aspen each summer to perform, many of them alumni of our teaching program. I'm your host, Alan Fletcher. Now please enjoy this next edition of High Notes. Good afternoon, and welcome to the final High Notes of our 2017 season. Uh, For those of you listening to us on Aspen Public Radio, uh, welcome. Aspen Public Radio is the uh, official voice of the Aspen Music Festival in school. Uh, This uh, program is also available on podcast. You can go to www.aspenmusicfestival.com. But we are here in Christ Episcopal Church with a wonderful audience who now can hear me, I think. And I'm joined by uh, a, a very uh, distinguished group of musicians, uh, Alyssa Weilerstein, who I think needs no introduction uh, to our Aspen audience, uh, but we're thrilled that you're here with us. Alyssa has been doing a lot of very generous performing in uh, the past uh, week or so, uh, but appears with the Aspen Chamber Symphony at 6 p.m. Uh, on August 18th in Shostakovich's second cello concerto. So uh, we're going to come to Alyssa a little later in the program, if she doesn't mind (coughs) listening to us talk about Berlioz uh, for a few minutes. Um, Then we're joined uh, by three of the four uh, soloists who will be part of our final concert of the season, which is Berlioz's Damnation of Faust, uh, 4 p.m. on Sunday, August 20th. Uh, John Rallier. Hello. uh, Brian Himmel. Hi. And Federico de Micheles. Hello, how are you? Now, let me tell you a little about our singers. I I think uh, many of you uh, will know uh, very much about them. But starting with John Relier, one of the great bass baritones in the world, Uh, his resume includes essentially every major opera house, Um, uh, but uh, leading roles of both really baritone and bass baritone fach, I would say. Mostly bass these days. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that a little lower, mostly bass. Excellent. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Now, since uh, our core mission is education uh, here in Aspen, uh, I do like to talk about people's education. And uh, John, I think you were in the Marilaw program? Yeah, I was in the Marilaw program in San Francisco, followed by the Adler Fellowship was another level up in uh, training for young artists. Uh, I won't give the year. (laughs) 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 But that was essentially uh, a whole summer. The Marilow program is a very intense 10-week program uh, for a lot of singers straight out of college and university um, and then followed, if you get asked, they sort of bring it down to about six to eight singers to do basically what's an apprentice program where you get opportunities to go on stage in the San Francisco Opera House for a period of about two years. At that time, I was uh, the only bass in the program, so I had a lot of opportunities to get on stage, which is essentially what you do these programs for. So... Great. Yeah. Now, I'm going to skip over Brian for a moment, and you'll find out why in a second. But uh, Federico, um, you, I think, uh, recently finished at the Houston Grand Opera Studio. Yes, yes, I finished just now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. perfect. And we have a very close association with the Houston Grand Opera Studio. Uh, Patrick Summers, who's music director at Houston Grand Opera, was with us for three weeks this summer doing a variety of conducting and teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen King, who is on the voice faculty of Houston Grand Opera and Rice University, is also... Uh, a great pillar of our voice faculty here. Um, but tell us a little about the Houston program, and I believe you're, uh, well, you've already sung with Houston Grand Opera, but you're making a major role debut uh, coming up. Yeah, yeah, it's another uh, another one of these major opera studios for, for young singers. 
uh, I did two years over there, and we got uh, lessons, and uh, and uh, we also trained our acting skills, and and we also being a bass bass baritone, I had lots of uh, chances to be on on stage, uh, and uh, it was it was a great opportunity. Now I'm coming back uh, to sing Aquila in uh, Giulio Cesare this this coming season. Fantastic. Um, now, I, I saved Brian for last uh, because although he also was at Merola um, and um, is having a very distinguished career, which I'll m make a few mentions of in a moment, uh, he studied with us in Aspen. So uh, we claim him as one of our own. We're extremely proud of that. And um, what, was, uh, what, what roles did you sing here? Okay, so I was here in 98 and 99 with my teacher from uh, Loyola University, who has since passed away, but we had a great two summers here. And that summer, I didn't do anything the first summer, but um, I won the competition, which was kind of coming from a small pond of New Orleans University to here against people from Juilliard and, 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 and uh, Eastman and all the big schools, it kind of was eye-opening for me. It's like, oh, well, maybe you should be serious about this. So uh, Ed Berkeley uh, took a chance on me, gave me my first role that was in a foreign language. So Cosi Fan Tutte was the first one I sang. Uh, and that was in 99. And then I went to Maryland in 2001. And then I came back when I studied with Stephen Smith um, here, who's also been here for, I don't know, 25 years. Um, and, uh, and we did La Boheme and Rigoletto. Uh, and yeah, and so then I was telling the guys in the Aspen Times, like, for me, this is my college town since I went to university in my hometown. I actually lived at home until I was 20. Um, so this is where I feel like I learned so much about being on my own, about taking ownership of my talent, as it were, not being, oh, I don't want to go practice. Everybody here, if you said, no, I got to go practice for an hour, you never got a hard time. You'd be eating at the cafeteria. Okay, we're going to go ride bikes or whatever. And they're like, no, I'm going to practice for an hour and I'll, I'll meet you out there. And this, it was such a a, a catalyst for me in that way. And the times that I came here in 98, 99, I was still very young and naive. And when I came back in 03 and 04, I really made the most of it because I'd already gone to Maryland, I'd already gone to other places and realized if I was going to do this, there was more that I needed to learn. So, Fantastic. Now, since uh, we do uh, claim you as part of our family, I'm going to brag about you a little bit. Um, Brian recently uh, won the Beverly Sills Award given by the Metropolitan Opera. It's a tremendous honor. Also, the Olivier Award, which is given in the UK uh, for a trio. Of I'm very proud of that because it means I can act as well as sing. <laughs> 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 and for a singer, that's a big deal. Excellent. But uh, I'd like you to, to help me uh, tell the story of um, how you saved uh, Les Troyens at, at the Met. Yes, I will give you the concise version of that. So uh, Berlioz has been really good to me um, because he wrote music that was very difficult for people to sing, especially for the tenors, uh, the basses as well, but the tenors, for some reason, he wrote in a very strange way that no other French composer wrote. Um, and so I had the opportunity to do Les Troyens in Amsterdam four years before I did the one in London. So without that opportunity of someone taking a chance on me, uh, and give me a shot on a role that is notoriously difficult and almost unsingable. 
Um, I went, I did it in Amsterdam. Thankfully, I did it four years earlier and had the chance to kind of live with it, do eight performances, keep it in my head because I do love that role almost more than, than anything else. Uh, and then when Covent Garden called me, they said, we're worried about Jonas. Uh, would you come here and just do some rehearsals until he, until he gets here? And I said, sure. Uh, I was in Salerno singing um, Robert Le Diable at the time, went straight there. My wife and I, we just kind of stayed in a hotel within pretty much the end of the first day. They said, the job is yours, but we have to make sure everything's okay. Because I think they just wanted me to meet the director, um, hear Tony Papano, or have him hear me sing it. Um, and they really put me through the ringer, but I was ready, fortunately, you know. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was crazy because Jonas Kaufman is... He's the tenor of the day right now. And everybody was going, was expecting to hear his, you know, imagine his voice singing all the roles that he sings, singing one like this that's, that's so difficult. And I think in the end, it was a combination of bad timing and that it just wasn't the right voice or it wasn't the right role for his voice. And so um, he and I now are friends. At the time, we didn't know each other. But now, now we're, because we actually were double cast on Damnation of Faust in Paris. And so during those weeks, we kind of got to know each other and, had coffees and dinners and such, and he's a super, super uh, nice guy. But anyway, that was really, the, the pressure of that weighed on me a lot. Um, whereas when I went to the Met six months later, it had already opened. The tenor who was singing there was clearly having a tough time, and it was almost a relief for him to just be able to take out. And then it pushed my Met debut up by four years, because I would not have made it until 2017 in La Boheme. And this is a big difference than, than La Boheme. Well, I have heard Susan Graham talk about uh, how she feels. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we love Susan. Yes. Uh, so that's great. Well, you've sort of uh, already alluded to this, but I want to ask all three of you, um, is there a particular style or particular requirements for singing Berlioz? I'd say it's pretty unique. Um, sort of looking at all the different sort of musical things that were going on at the time that this was written, it's, uh, it really stands on its own. I mean, you can, you can uh, just basically follow the usual uh, mode of, you know, really making a good line, a legato, um, but it's, um, it's, it's rather unique, I mean, especially for the tenor. Um, and, and looking at Berlioz, you know, he wrote, uh, like Brian says, you know, a lot of his uh, operas, they're rather kind of schizophrenic roles by nature and identity, you know, you're, you combine lyric qualities with very dramatic qualities, and there's very few singers out there, especially uh, in the case of, of Brian, who is remarkable, um, <laughs> to be doing this rep. With, with <laughs> to be doing this rep and a lot of the other Berlioz rep, you know, you can see from his stories that uh, there's not a lot of people out there doing this and able to do this. It's a it's a huge amount of technical mastery involved. Uh, looking at the kind of the way he's rendered the character of uh, Mephisto. Uh, I like it a lot because, you know, you can put some character into it, but you can also really sing it and do some real lyrical stuff, and dramatic stuff. Uh, it's very versatile, and, and it, the piece and the style stands kind of alone at the time. It's very much ahead of its time, um, you know, looking again at, at the things that were written in the er, uh, early 1800s. So, Federico, any thoughts about it? No, no, I agree. I agree. It's, it's, it's that chance of... Uh, of putting character into something very unique. It's a very unique language. I think we, we all agree on that. But also having the opportunity to sing, uh, to give that, that lyricism. It's, it's very particular. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Berlioz, um, you know, it's been a while, it may be like a year and a half since I last did this piece, and when we came for the meet and greet yesterday, we actually said, oh, well, why don't we just practice, we just, just sing through some of the stuff that we don't have Sasha for, and I said, oh, okay, great, but I didn't have my score with me, and so I started, and I was like, yeah, I kind of remember how it goes, but it's so tricky, like, the, the Berlioz, he kind of, he loved to do what you didn't expect him to do, which just makes it a little bit hard to memorize. <laughs> uh, but I think he wrote very instrumentally, gorgeous melodies and stuff like that, less vocally, say Puccini and Verdi and Donizetti. These guys were writing with the voice in mind. I think Berlioz was, but he almost, like for Le Troyen, there are three offstage bandas all playing with the orchestra at the same time. I know at Covent Garden and at the Met, we never got it right with video monitors and headphones and everything else. It's like, if we can't do it now, he was like writing for the heavenly choirs or something. I don't know where everything is just going to be perfect. But, and I think he did that too for, Meyerbeer did it I think a lot too. John and I have sung some of the hardest music we've either sung together. So we're like really, you know, we've been through it. So we're happy to do this piece, which is difficult, but not as epic as those other ones. You know, Troyan's five hours long. Guillaume Tell is five hours long. Um, uh, what's the, Robert Le Diable is five hours long with crazy, crazy craziness. So I think here it's a perfect piece for Aspen because the music is glorious. Um, it's, it's, it's complex, but it's not complicated. It still sounds beautiful. And then when it gets creepy, it gets creepy with purpose. It's, it's a tricky piece because it's not written as an opera. It's not written to be done on the stage as a theater piece. But, yeah. John, you did the amazing one at the Met, right? The yeah, yeah, they used a lot of video. It's a typical kind of of the Robert Lepage productions, if, if people know that. Uh, it's done in a very kind of cinem cinematographic, cinematographical, oh my God, what a big Ooh. word, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, style. You know, there's always kind of video, uh, you know, illustrating the scenes. And, and you know... In essence, that's, that's really wonderful to have, and no criticism to it, but the way he's illustrated the piece, just in terms of its orchestration, really provides yeah. enough for a concert setting, and um, even though it, it really wasn't written in, with the intention of becoming an opera, the dramatic uh, momentum is, is as strong as things written much later. It really has a great sort of through line and and the the numbers while they were originally written as separate pieces they they are so well um, strung together it's it's wonderful yeah I, I, and I think you know because when we did it we with, there's so much chorus in this piece but they're long choruses and you figure from a stage directing point of view what do you do with the chorus for five minutes while they're just singing kind of the same words and all this kind of stuff. So it, it is a challenge, but I think I love that production. And I think the Paris production that we did is really cool. Again, we used a lot of video to help illustrate and tell the story. Um, but, but it's awesome. You're right, because Wagner and Berlioz are really the, the, the ones that did their librettos and the music at the same time. And I think that, that some people give them a hard time for that, but I think that it adds a whole new element because they knew sometimes the librettist thinks this and the composer just doesn't want to do that and goes their own direction. But this way you have a complete organic you know, creation between the music and the words. Great, so I want to get into that a, a little more, but, but a parenthesis, uh, the other singer who will be with us on Sunday is Sasha Cook. Uh, Sasha also, uh, a alumna of our opera center, and uh, she is in Santa Fe right now, uh, giving the world premiere of uh, Mason Bates' new Steve Jobs opera. Mason Bates, also an alumnus of our composition program. Uh, Steve Jobs 
did not come to the Aspen Music Festival in school, <laughs> but at a crucial moment in his life, he came to the Aspen International Design Conference. So uh, that's uh, sort of interesting. Um, but, you, but you're already uh, talking uh, about the interesting fact that this work, Damnation of Faust, uh, although it is fair to say it's operatic, is not an opera, and Berlioz was very clear about this. Um, and for some of the reasons you say, he, he wanted to have the long, long choruses and understood, of course he was a master of stagecraft, uh, understood that it probably would not be a stage piece. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, at the time, they didn't have these opportunities to, to do the, the, you know, the other stuff like that. And I think, um, yeah, because all of it, I mean, the, the Requiem Mass that he does, the, 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 the other things, um, they're so grand in their scale um, and just the way that he wants to do it. And you could tell he loved writing for choruses and he loved, obviously, orchestral music. But, um, you know, the, the Turkish March at the beginning and some of the other uh, ballet music um, that I guess you guys used at the Met and we certainly used in Paris, uh, it's stunning. I mean, I, some of my favorite music of Les Troyens is, is, the, is the ballet music. Uh, there are great moments in here and there, um, but over five hours, if you had to pick your kind of three best moments, one of them is for sure uh, in the ballet in the second part. The other one is probably the duet, and the other one for me is the, the Didon aria at the beginning of, uh, of, of, of the part in, in Carthage. Yeah. Well, so Berlioz calls for one of the largest orchestras um, ever assembled. Is that hard for you uh, as singers? I'd say that uh, even that being the case, I think it's really used in sort of the bigger numbers that don't necessarily involve the singers, you know, the yes. Hungarian March, for example. Um, but when the singers do appear, I think he's very conscious of scaling it back and uh, very sensitive to that, that element. Because since it is a concert piece, it means the orchestra's right there behind you, right. and so they're not hiding down in the pit either. Right. Yeah. I think as long as we're in front of the orchestra, we'll be okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with John. He really did, uh, you know, keep in mind that the singers were going to have to do this. But we also have to remember now that modern orchestra and modern instruments play louder than they did back then. The pitch, uh, you know, although there's, there's, there's a bit of um, discussion about this, the pitch is a bit higher. Um, and so there are certain things that you have to, I mean, even... If you get a Mozart or a Donizetti orchestra playing loud, you can still drown out the singer. I mean, uh, we, I do a lot of Puccini and Verdi, and if you get a conductor who's just super excited and gets the band to go with them, forget about it. You don't have a shot. <laughs> but, you know, you just have to be, like, focused and just trust that your voice is going to, 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 to carry out. Um, but uh, it, is a big, it is a big band, and especially with the brass gets kicking, you really feel... Um, that and and it's great. It's a wonderful ride, a like wave of emotion of of sound. And I think if you if you just trust that you can ride it, as opposed to trying to fight against it, just go with it. Let your voice flow. Uh, I don't think you're going to have any problem hearing any of the four of us. But I have seen it be a problem. Let's say because even for NA, John Vickers, all these big big voices sang it, 
But then also you had, if you get a sensitive conductor, Gregory Kunde has sung it, uh, Gedda has sung it. Uh, I'm probably somewhere between those. I'm certainly not a John Vickers, uh, but I'm not a Gedda either. So I think this is why I've been able to walk this line for now, because I'm still young, so the high notes are pretty easy. And, but I don't quite have the heft that hopefully if everything goes well, I'll have in 10 years. You know? Interesting. So Federico, maybe you would uh, lead us into the story, just so that we've covered this. Uh, what is happening in this piece, and what is your character? Well, my character is uh, the, the, the drunk in the, in the story, basically. I have a, a small uh, number with the chorus in which uh, I, I just entertain uh, the crowd for a little while, while uh, Faust and, and Mephistopheles are planning their, their, their way into Marguerite's uh, heart, in a way. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be nice here. <laughs> Go on if you want. No, with no, your no, 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 I love it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think we, we, all of us more or less know the story. Uh, Faust is, is uh, not having a good time uh, at the end of his life, and uh, he is in despair. And in that despair, he, he calls for the devil. Yeah. Uh, and the devil this time does appear and, <laughs> and offers him a deal. Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, so it, then it becomes the classic tale of, you know, you name it, I'll give it to you. Um, all the pleasures you want, you know, fame, wealth, money. Um, you know, the, this, is, uh, this is so much fun, really, for, for me. I mean, I'm, I play... <laughs> I can, <laughs> I can, I can pretend to to give away the things that I can't. But um, it, yeah, it's uh, you know the, the character of the devil is uh, you know very sarcastic in this case. He's always mocking uh, religion and uh, you know the 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 idea of uh, Marguerite, you know, being this pure virgin and just being able to kind of just you know, destroy that purity. You know, he, he revels in these kinds of opportunities. And um, so he takes him on this long journey, which we could speculate could just be a very brief illusion that he conjures up for him and uh, has a great time until the very end when, uh, you know. I think it's really interesting, because um, I know John and I have both done the Berlioz Faust, but also the Gounod Faust. And I think it's really interesting to see the different ways that they chose to tell the stories and what Berlioz spent more time on and what Gounod spent more time on. On this one, you know, they're both wonderful. They're just, they're just different, uh, you know, because once the devil comes in, in in the Gounod one, we kind of had this whole exchange, whereas this one, he comes in and says, I got what you want. Just takes over right away. Yeah, yeah. and I'm like... Okay. And after he, sang, after he sang yesterday, I was like, John, I will follow you anywhere. <laughs> you, you sound like that. I trust you. Don't follow the bass. <laughs> Don't do it. But, but he does, like in, in the Berlioz one, we do spend this time where we see the students, where we do this, and, and Faust is like, no, I want, I want something that's not so, I mean, he says bestial, bestialité. Uh, but he just wants something that's not carnal. He wants something that's a bit more uh, long-lasting. And he says, okay, great, go to sleep. I'm going to show you this. There's the vision of Marguerite. And then we spend the rest of the show uh, trying to court her. She sings yeah. two beautiful, gorgeous, long arias that you get this in Gounod, but it's not, it's not the same. It doesn't set up the character in the same way. Yeah, it's interesting because like when you compare it to the Gounod, 
um, uh, Faust in that rendition is a lot more resistant. There's a lot more of, totally. of Mephisto trying to convince them this is what you want to do now. Right. And he, he uh, even leads him to murder, which we don't see in, in this, this sort of rendition. But uh, nonetheless, it's, it, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Absolutely. I mean, I think by Berlioz doing that, it, it focuses just on... The, the Marguerite and the tragic yeah. the tragedy of that situation, which is why I said not just the heart, because it yeah. is the tragedy of what he does to her. Uh, and I think that that was a greater, I mean, in the way the Gunoan almost diffuses it too much by putting it among all these vices, where in here, it's very much about um, the guy wronging the woman, which is another, this is a Berlioz theme, Troya has the same thing, you see it in other things. And um, so, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's, Sometimes I think, oh, well, we have how many versions? There are two versions of Bohem, one standard, one's not so standard, but still interesting to see how a composer will, will see one and then say, well, that's interesting, but maybe I want to tell the story this way. And I mean, there's so many riches in opera that to offer that I just wish everybody knew about it. I wish we were talking to 2,000 people you know, right now because it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's really great. So thinking about Sasha's role, I mean, she goes along with it and... Um, but then she's sorry. Yes. <laughs> she is sorry. She sings about being alone and waiting. She's reading the, 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 from the book about the, um, the king, uh, you know, who is, who is uh, I don't exactly remember all, the, all of what she says, because it is about eight minutes. But it's really beautiful. Um, and then after all the, the, the beautiful duet and then the crazy hard trio that we have, she sings this beautiful it's, it's one of the most gorgeous pieces of music I've ever, ever, ever heard. And this is the end of her happiness. But at least she gets that moment of that, that we get to share with her, that Berlioz gave that to us. Because we all know the story's not going to go well. But at least at, for those you know, six or seven minutes, you can just revel in the simple beauty of just being in love and being happy. Great. So I'd like to shift gears and just talk about uh, career for a, a moment. Um, and, and have each of you let us know what is it like, uh, the travel, the rehearsal periods, and uh, the contrast then between singing with an orchestra, uh, where it's going to be a week-long gig, uh, and, and traveling somewhere for an operatic production. You know, you start out, and uh, it's all a very, very new world. We, we, um uh, we, if it's a concert uh, work, we, we usually gone for about a week. My my career started really primarily in this area, even though I, you know, been trained largely in opera. Um, but then, as you get into opera, you're gone from, you know, depending on if it's a new production or not, and depending on the opera opera house, you're gone from anywhere from four to eight or even ten weeks at one time. So naturally, that being the case, if you've got a family to come home to, it's it's uh, you know rather challenging, and and you kind of live your your life uh, oftentimes like a monk because you have to take care of your voice. That's the the main thing. So while the travel element can kind of look glamorous in a way, and you go to some very wonderful cities all over the world, you I mean in my case, I, I very much have to kind of keep to myself a lot of the time and just keep the whole concept of what I'm working on uh, steady. I don't ship gears so easily myself, but um, yeah, um, and uh, in the beginning, uh, when you have a family, oftentimes you can travel, so 
for my kids, you know, it was a great opportunity to get out and experience other cultures, you know, that a lot of kids their age wouldn't, and it's given them a, a very, you know, good perspective on the world, and uh, later on, you don't have those opportunities for your family, family to come out, but, um, you know, you, you create a, a very interesting understanding of the world for your kids. I will just piggyback on top of that because John, his kids are a bit older than our kids are, um, but we have two that are two and three years old, so it's pretty tough. And we just came back from six months being in Europe. Uh, so that was around month four, we really were feeling it. Uh, but we pushed through and we made it. I mean, again, we were in we're great places and it is glamorous and it is fun and it is exceptional but it is difficult because it's not our place our kids are not sleeping in their bed they don't have their toys they have some uh but you know two months in paris seven weeks in london two months in paris two weeks in greece two weeks in barcelona and then we came back and each one we have five suitcases that'll have all of our stuff um, and, you know, I know some Sopranos who travel with five suitcases. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to apologize about that. But, I mean, our, 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 our transfer days, you know, uh, when we, we flew to Paris and it was okay, but then, you know, we took the train from Paris uh, to London and with, you know, a stroller and two kids and five suitcases and me and us, like we're, you know, I've got four, she's got three plus one hand on the thing. It ends up being, those are the hardest days. Performance days are tough, but those really, those really beat it. But, you know, as John said, the opportunity for the kids to see, I mean, I asked Ava, our oldest daughter, Ava, what's your favorite city? She was like, hmm, Paris. I was like, <laughs> okay, I agree. At three, three and a half, Paris is her favorite city, so... Well, in my case, I don't have a family. I'm, I'm taking my first steps in, in, in a major career, I hope. And uh, it's, it's tough. No, it is. It is tough. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. In my case, I, I'm from Argentina. I'm from Buenos Aires. So I, I left uh, quite some time ago to go to, to Spain to study and to, to take my first steps in, in Europe. And uh, yeah, so I, for example, in the last six years, I've been home to see my family, my sisters, my friends only three times for like 10, 15 days. Uh, because it's far, because you're busy, it's expensive. Uh, and, uh, and now, yeah, you, you, you feel it. You feel the, 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 the not being home, you know, that, that, that feeling of having everything in two suitcases, and that's your life right there. No, yeah. no it's just nothing else. At the same time, uh, when you are, at least in my case, the, the, when you begin the rehearsal period and, and you're there working with your colleagues and getting, getting to know people and having, you know, a little family everywhere you go, hopefully, you know, because most, most colleagues are great people like these guys and it's, it's, uh, it makes it worth it. And it's, it's really, it's really uh, thrilling to, to have that kind of lifestyle as well. Well, let's bring Alyssa in on this subject then because you tour constantly all over the world. Um, I believe you live in Berlin right. now. Uh, your husband is a conductor, so you're both touring constantly, and you have an 18-month... 16. 16, okay. 16-month-old, <laughs> yes. a little girl. Uh, so she's probably been on five or ten trips so far. 80 flights, actually. 80. Wow. At, at 16 yes. months. At 16 months, she's been on 80 She's flights. not old enough to tell me what her favorite city is yet. Give her time. No, but um, I took her to Japan... Uh, when she was six months, and then we went to Australia, and flying from Sydney to Munich with her, with a wow. seven-month-old, yeah. that was... 
<laughs> it's yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Performance days, as you say, yeah. piece of cake in comparison. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. we're not gonna, <laughs> Although she's a great traveler, so, so far. We're not going to make it a contest, but no. tell us how different it is uh, in your touring. It's every few days. Yes. Yeah. So. And with... And with um, I, I was I was laughing when you were saying you know, five suitcases and a stroller. And yeah, and and you and you have two little kids. I don't know how you do it, but yeah. um, yeah. She does it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, it's uh, you know I, I, I play the cello as, as you know, and so cello. I, there there was one time I am almost almost always with a nanny, which yeah. is um, it's actually physically impossible to carry everything otherwise. But there was one time for various you know, sort of boring uh, reasons, I was running through the Frankfurt airport. And if you've ever traveled through Frankfurt, you know that uh, if you're very unlucky to land in a gate, where it's huge. And I was, connecting for, I was flying from Boston to Moscow, and I connected in Frankfurt. And I landed at gate, I don't know, Z63, and I was going to be... 23, which meant, meant that I ran from 63 to 1 in the Z terminal, then had to exit the terminal, then uh, went, you know, took a train, went through security, went through passport control, ran again like another 20 gates, and I was alone with stroller, carry-on, cello on my back, diaper bag, and, and of course, <laughs> my baby. Who and needs so the gym, right? Was, who needs the gym? <laughs> who needs it? <laughs> and, um, I, and actually, I, I, I met um, the, the nanny that was going to help me at, at, at the next gate, and she had this bottle of water in her hand, and I, I'd, I'd run for actually 40 minutes straight like, like this, and I was heaving, water, now, like this. <laughs> it was, uh, it's funny now, but it, it, it was, um, it was not, not, not funny at the time. <laughs> Hotels with kids are tough too. Yes. I, we are lucky to get apartments. Yes. And it's a little bit easier because you can cook their stuff. But exactly. hotels, can you bring exactly. me some hot water? Yeah. I need this for the babies. And, can oh, somebody sorry, get us diapers? Have a crib tonight. Yeah, yeah. That, right. That's tough. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, the, during that during that entire time, I, I don't. Um, you know, she's very used to traveling. During that forty minute run, which I, when I almost missed my flight, but I, I made it by about a hair, and she didn't make a single sound. Wow. She was. She said, "Okay, well, you clearly need to do something." So I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs <laughs> like this. It was, it was amazing. Uh, amazing. Uh. How often do you travel with Raphael? Um, fairly often, actually. Uh, we, we 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 do play together quite a bit, which is which is wonderful. Um, and we also we kind of chase each other. If he has a free week, he comes with me. If I have a free week, I I, I go with him. So. Um, we uh, we manage. I don't know. I'd say seventy percent of the time we're we're, we're together, wow. which is okay. great. Yeah, that is great. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about Shostakovich. Um, this is shifting gears a bit back to uh, <laughs> the musical side, uh, but this is his second cello concerto. Um, the his his writing for cello was very much uh, personal uh, in an important way. Maybe you could talk about that. Yes, very much. Um, well. I'm, I'm sure you know, many of you must be uh, familiar with the cellist um, Rostropovich, who was um, probably, you know, arguably the, the greatest cellist of the, of the 20th century, and um, was Shostakovich's muse as well as Prokofiev's muse, um, and many, many other composers uh, of his time. And I think he premiered um, 200 and something works in his lifetime. And so we, we cellists of, of, of my generation, really owe Rostropovich um, uh, the, the amazing 20th century output from these amazing composers uh, for, for cello and, and orchestra and also solo cello pieces uh, and also um, chamber music. And so um, 
there, there's a nice story actually that, of course, Rostropovich was a very larger than life personality. And um, he apparently asked um, Shostakovich's third wife, um, Irina Shostakovich, he said, Well, how can I, how can, uh, how, how will, you know, Dmitri write, write, write me a cello concerto? And she said, The best way to make sure that he'll write something for you is to never talk to him about it. And never ask him about uh. an answer. <laughs> and um, he followed this advice, apparently. And, and uh, the first cello concerto, I think, was written in 1959, so Opus 107. Um, it's, of course, it's an absolute masterpiece, but generally has a very sarcastic, um, black humor kind of, you know, it's kind of dominated by this, and at least in the outer movements. The inner movements, you hear more of Shostakovich's, um, perhaps, inner world. But the second cello concerto, which was written um, about seven years later, um, is really kind of the gateway to late Shostakovich, where, um, of, of course, we, we, we know that he lived uh, in the Soviet Union and was, you know, was constantly under threat um, by the government, you know, for, for, for the music that he wrote, for the friends that he had, for the people that he supported. Um, it was... It, he, he lived in a state of constant uh, nervous tension. He could have been sent to prison for any reason, just because, at any time, really. And um, he watched his friends uh, disappear and also get, uh, you know, ostracized for no reason, including Rostropovich, who was effectively thrown out of the Soviet Union in, in um, the early 1970s. Um, in any case, uh, in addition to this, uh, during his late period, Shostakovich was also very, very ill. Um, I think he spent the last nine, nine or so years of his life in and out of hospital. And so it, it, the concerto is, um, it starts uh, with an incredibly bleak and dark um, character. And I'm tempted to say the word tragic, but it's not tragic, tragic in a romantic sense um, because his expression is never um, direct not in a Tchaikovskyan sense, um, that kind of grabs you by the heart and doesn't, doesn't let you go. Um, if you imagine that a person is, is forced to constantly remain composed on the surface but is absolutely anguished on the inside, this is the kind of emotion that we have to communicate somehow um, to the audience. And this is a, it's a fantastic challenge. And it's, it's one reason I love playing Shostakovich so much is to kind of explore this. Um, so the first movement um, begins like this and kind of builds to this really terrifying climax where the cello is basically screaming at the bass drum. Um, and uh, it's, th this is, it's quite literally terrifying um, if we do it right. And um, the second movement is a four minute um, scherzo of sorts. And uh, it's, a, um, it's actually based on a very, very dirty street song uh, <laughs> from Odessa, which um, it translates roughly to Come By My Bagels, which was strung, you know, sung by street vendors, but also was strung, uh, sorry, strung, also was sung by, um, by prostitutes. And so it says, uh, Shostakovich very often loved to sneak these melodies in and kind of behind the government's back because of course the government didn't know anything about music at all, even though they had these committees that would approve works for um, for public uh, viewing or, or listening. Um, and so he liked to kind of stick it to them by, by, by sneaking these kinds of tunes in to, to his music, and he does all, all throughout his, uh, his output. Um, so it's very, quite vulgar, as you can imagine. Um, 
and he, he Shostakovich even writes these very wild slides for the cello part and some very, um, say, annoying writing for the wind players. Um, <laughs> this, uh, this kind of barrels into the last moment without pause where you'll hear a, a wild cadenza for cello and tambourine. Uh, and then this goes into this, I, I think of it as kind of, a, it's, it, it, the, the third movement, is, it's illusion. Um, it goes into this faux romantic cadence, which um, Shostakovich also very often made fun of, let's say, bad romantic composers that would use a very basic cadence all the time, always the same. Um, and he actually repeats this cadence five times in, um, in the last movement. Um, so it's a, it actually winds up being kind of a variation movement. However, the cadence is written differently each time. And uh, the, so the first four times I feel are very ironic. He's clearly making fun of, uh, of this kind of you know, basic sort of bad writing. And um, after the fourth time, you get into sort of different material, which actually uh, refers to another folk song, a serious one this time. This leads gradually into um, the return of the theme from the second movement, but this time it comes in with terrifying force and it's absolutely tragic and um, it's, inc it's incredibly powerful. The cello comes out, this is in the orchestra, and the cello comes out screaming this fanfare which you started with in the, in the opening of the third movement and then leads back to this cadence again. But this time, personally, I feel this is the time when it's not ironic. It's finally looking to the past and thinking, is there any hope for something, for something beautiful? Is there any, any hope at all? And you know, the, this is the final variation, and it's, and it's actually between the solo cello and the cello section, so it's very, very beautiful, actually. And then it, it kind of, goes down lower and lower and lower into the cello register and onto the C string and then goes back to the opening theme of the first movement, which you won't forget, I promise. It's, it's very, very distinct. And that's the answer. I said, nope, nothing, complete negation. Well, there was a period of many months in Shostakovich's life when he was so convinced he was going to be arrested and that he would never come back uh, that he packed a suitcase every night and sat in the hallway so that his family wouldn't be disturbed when they came for him. Um, so he mm -hmm. had some unhappy... Uh, and it's, it's a kind of uh, world it's difficult to imagine, sitting where we are now. You know, to go back to our singers for a moment, mm -hmm. um, I'm convinced uh, Shostakovich, his first real problem with the Soviet government uh, was about uh, one of his operas, uh, Lady Macbeth, and he never wrote another opera. I'm convinced that if that had not happened, he would have been one of the greatest opera composers in history. Um, have any of you sung Shostakovich? I have not, no. I've seen it, but uh, it's great. Because yeah. there are, I think, I two, that opera. two operas I that the Met the does. The as well, yeah. 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 We have a connection to Shostakovich in New Orleans because Maxime Shostakovich was the conductor of Louisiana Philharmonic for a while. Actually, when I was growing up, he was the one, so he would come on TV and, you know, and, and so we have this kind of, and at the time I just, I didn't know anything about it, but now after having gone to Moscow for the Rostropovich Festival and understanding, it's like, wow, okay, yeah. So even a little kid in the suburb of New Orleans, music reaches all of that, even though, and I had no idea, but I just heard, heard some of the Shostakovich music and thought, this is moving. 
And that's all I needed at that point. And now I get to listen to Elisa speak about this, and I don't know this piece, but now I'm ready to, we're ready to go hear it. You know, I mean, I want to hear terrifying cello screams. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what that really sounds like, so I'm ready to go. Well, indulge me, I'm gonna, just a, a light story um, is at one point in my life, I was giving the entrance exams at Juilliard, and I, I was giving the solfege, ear training, entrance exams. And I had not been provided with a list this one day, and so a young man comes in, and I had to say, what's your name? And he said, Dmitry Shostakovich. What? And I said, well, yeah, really, come on. This is, <laughs> this, this is a serious thing we're doing here. What is your name? And he said, Dmitry Shostakovich. And I said, yeah, I'm Alban Berg, but uh, I'm going to need to know your name. And it was wow. the son of Maxime, wow. so the grandson of yes. Dmitry Shostakovich. Yeah. And he was a, a piano major, and he, I was giving him his solfege exam. Nice. Oh, cool. um, he was able to sight read really well. I bet. Terrific. So uh, I, I wanted to talk about Rostropovich and the, the commissioning aspect, because at a dinner party the other night, a person who, by the way, was uh, complaining about new music uh, <laughs> <laughs> said to me, why do performers insist on playing new music all the time? Is it that they're sick of the standard repertoire? Um, so I don't know if you would like to comment on that. In, you know, it, because in cello, it's a, a person of your experience is actually able to have played essentially all of the standard concertos. Uh, so how do you feel about well, this? Well, I mean, as you say, the cello repertoire, the standard cello repertoire, say the repertoire that really everyone is, knows and loves so well, um, is very, very small. So that's one reason why most, um, most, actually almost all cellists that I know are very curious about what's being written now. Um, but Rostropovich is really one of the prime examples, I think, of somebody who um, not only played the standard repertoire so well, but was also such a pioneer and um, was very, very curious about, about what was being written and was very invested in creating a, a new repertoire. And I think, you know, I, I feel very strongly that I, I, I want to be part of creating a 21st century repertoire, so. Um, then thinking about the, the standard repertoire, how is it for a singer? Um, because of course there's vast, vast repertoire, but is there a limitation on your particular Fach? Uh, um, I'd say, yeah, the, of course there's limitations, but uh, there are phases, really, in, in, in my Fach especially. What you sing as a young bass is, is sort of the first chapter, and you'll, you know, at times you'll play it safe, you'll, you'll stick to Mozart or Rossini, and that might kind of go into the middle phase, you know, as you're going kind of into your 30s and your 40s. Um, you know, I think diversity really for a lot of singers in this day and age is, is rather essential yeah. anyway. You know, we, we sing many different styles and we, we sing in three to five different languages. Um, but all these things sort of accumulate and then we come into our more mature repertoire and right now I'm kind of stepping more into Major Verdi and Wagner. But these are things that you couldn't do as a young singer. Um, and uh, so, you know, limitations are greater at earlier phases when you, you have to kind of say to yourself, that repertoire is ahead of me. This, this is particular role is a stretch right now. So, and, and also with age comes life experience, which in, uh, for a bass, you know, they're, they're very mature characters on the whole. And um, 
you know, it, it makes sense to come to them with, with having lived more and, and uh, kind of found your own kind of, uh, you know, life story and, and, and experience of humanity and, and uh, sort of the greater experiences there. So Federico, you're singing Handel this year. Yes. Uh, Kirsten Flagstad actually started out as a Handel specialist, ended up as one of the greatest Wagnerians in, ever, and Strauss' four last songs were written for her. But so how do you see that changing? Are you going to be doing the lighter things now? Or? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's just like that. It's, it's a process, you know, and you, you, there's, there's nothing you can do to, to accelerate it, and you have to be very careful about it because it's a, it's a lifelong career and uh, and the instrument is all you have so so yeah 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 and it's cannot buy another one right right at least yet <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> true touche um but yeah 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 so right now yeah basically uh, what i'm doing is is mozarts and and handles and uh quite a few Maybe not not heavier roles, but but uh, heavier composers, but smaller roles in those operas, and 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 just trying to be careful to to have a long-lasting career, which is what we all want. Absolutely. I just want to say one thing about new music because I have not done a lot of new music until very recently, um, and I think that we're we're kind of in a time where we're figuring out there are so many different ways to tell a story now than there were back in the day. And I think that, you know, with the Steve Jobs Opera, with the other things that places like Santa Fe and Houston and Dallas um, are doing, it's now not all the time would the musical aesthetic appeal to everyone. And I can understand that. There are certain composers who are trying to still write beautiful music while still telling uh, stories that are a bit more complex. Um, and this started back with people like Zemlinsky, who would tell really dark stories with really crazy, um, you know, uh, orchestration and stuff like that. And then it kind of just got, all that pretty music got thrown away because that was passe now. They wanted to hear things that were going to be really um, out there, like Wozzeck telling out there stories, Lulu, th these things like this. But now we've come back, uh, I think, to not shying away from beautiful music while still being able to, like the Everest, the one that they did in Dallas um, about the guys climbing the mountain. It's still beautiful music. But telling a story about guys climbing a mountain, it, you wouldn't think that this is, you want to go see an opera about that? But it's the relationship between the guys and knowing that you can't save your buddy uh, because, because you have to save yourself. And maybe you're not going to see yourself, but maybe you can get back and get the, I mean, it's all these kinds of psychological things that now we have as tools to tell a story as a composer and a librettist. That Puccini and Verdi and Wagner, they told great stories, but they were telling stories in the way that they were used to telling stories at that time. And I think that this is part of what, um, what we need to, and, and I would like to do more new music. I don't have a lot of time for it because it often takes longer to learn because it's more difficult. Uh, but I will certainly say that um, we're working on a commission right now with a friend of ours. Um, and we're gonna, we're gonna to, to, to pursue that because I think that this Telling the story in a different way is what would be most interesting to our generation. Pretty music is great, but tell us a story. Move us in a way that we can't get moved on YouTube in four minutes, that we can't get you know, moved by going see the next uh, you know, blockbuster that comes out um, in this way. And this is our goal. I think it's all of our goals, yeah. but I think this is the way forward for opera and classical music in general. Not watering down the product, but, but, but showing 
what is different and why I didn't grow up listening to opera classical music and now it's my whole life. I couldn't imagine it without it. But I grew up listening to country western as my dad drove me and my sister to school. And I came from a city of jazz. And I still love those things, but now this is, this is like our life force. Well, that's actually a, a beautiful uh, thought uh, to take a pause and see if you have questions or comments. And if you do put your hand up, wait for a mic to come to you, please. How do you find the uh, stage direction world of the opera directors, especially as a challenge to being true to you. And I know you're being recorded and their employers <laughs> have, uh, <coughs> Any thoughts on that? I'll let John start with this one. Well, I think now, probably more so than, than many other times in the past, we, we deal with directors from many different backgrounds. And some of them come from straight theater, uh, some of them uh, even come from film. And I think the challenge there is that we're kind of meeting each other with our, our very different sort of uh, backgrounds. And um, in the best situations, uh, the directors treat it like just as much of a learning curve as we do working with them. Um, so you, you, you definitely learn from each other. And uh, I think there's been some really gratifying experiences in that regard. And also there are frustrating experiences because Sometimes the two do, do not meet. Um, we, you know, sometimes the source material is not st studied well um, in terms of the opera libretto by the director. They have a different, more maybe modern perspective, which can be useful, useful in some cases, but may not embrace the sort of temperament of, of your typical um, you know, singer playing the part. So there can be some friction and resistance uh, from both sides in that situation. And ego. That, that too, yes, yes indeed, um, yeah. Well, although as a sidelight, Renee Fleming was here earlier in the summer and uh, she was asked, why do directors uh, make singers roll around on the floor so much? <laughs> and she said, I actually like to sing lying down. So I don't know how you feel about that. Maybe it's a soprano thing. I don't like to sing lying down. <laughs> I've done it, but I don't enjoy doing it. But I do, I mean, I, just to piggyback on what John was saying, I think, you know, a lot of times these productions are all about, uh, first off, opera, especially in Europe, is all about the productions now, unfortunately. Uh, and it's, you know, sometimes we sing well in spite of what we're being asked to do. Sometimes what they're asking to do makes us not sing as well as we can, and that I know is super frustrating. Uh, we did a show together in London, which well, I won't say which one it was, but it was only one, so you could look it up. Uh, and the stage director, the stage director uh, wanted me to be like, uh, like, a, like a headbanger, rock and roll character, um, which you always wanted me angry and, and angsty. And I was like, and he didn't speak English, and I, my French is okay, but not well enough to, to argue with him over this. And so I just said flat out, you know, in English to the conductor, I was like, I cannot sing this. This is one of the most difficult, harder than, uh, than Les Troyens, harder than Guillaume Tell, Robert Le Diable is impossible to sing for all of us. And I said, I'm lucky I can sing it just standing and like looking at you because I'm singing to you in this. I cannot run around the stage pulling my hair out, singing high C's and high D's and low C's and the same thing. It's just impossible. And he just didn't get it. And furthermore, he kind of didn't care, which is why I'm not going to work with him anymore. But, you know, this is, this is the thing. It's all about the direction, the director's vision 
and how you can fit into it, whether you look good in the costume, who cares? That's the costume, uh, because we have a costume designer and that was their thing. And unfortunately, I mean, I'm all about the collaborative effort, but that doesn't feel collaborative. That feels like I, we are monkeys who are gonna show up and just do our tricks or dogs or whatever, just to do it and, and, and we get paid our fee and everybody's gonna leave talking about, well, that's so much better than the one I saw at Bayreuth, or this one's terrible compared to what I saw in Paris. And it becomes this whole other thing that is not about the art. Yeah, it's interesting too, because you know, touching on the, the costume design, but then also there's the sets, you know, and, and what, what is really hard and, and, and really essentially kind of unfair to the singers is that the director gets to collaborate with the, the costume design, uh, the set design, and, and bring this whole concept to this whole team of people weeks or months before the singers get involved. So we are given a very small sort of portal to fit into that whole concept with. And, uh, you know, as, as Brian's saying, you know, there, there's, there's the, the, the staging and, and you know, there's a very different physicality to being able to sing extremely challenging roles that would not lend itself to some rather extreme sort of examples of staging. Um, yeah, and uh, this is something I think uh, would sort of, the answer might be to get the singers involved much earlier on in the collaborative process so that all those sort of pitfalls can be avoided. I will say, since uh, you're being very open, and which is great, um, I saw the ring in, in Los Angeles, and there were aspects of the staging that looked terrifying, and I was able to speak with one of the singers, I won't say which one, but who had to do a big duet in Valkyra, so now you can guess. And um, I said, it looked terrifying, and she said, I was scared out of my mind every minute that I was on that set. And you can't sing well like that. You just can't, you can sing well, but you can't sing your best. And there is no reason for that, I'm sorry. And Wagner and this, and, but when you get a bully director or a bully conductor, and depending on where you are in your career, you say you, you just have to do it because you need the job. If you get the reputation of being difficult to work with, your career could be over like that. Just two questions. Uh, one, has anyone ever considered doing the Trojans as two nights? I think it just yes, painful. it has. It, I was supposed to do it, but I couldn't end up doing it because I had a conflict where they did one night, uh, the first part, and the second night, uh, uh, the second part. I mean, I think we should do that here actually because it would be super fun, and it's much more manageable uh, in two nights for the chorus and the conductor and the orchestra. I mean, and the yeah. audience. And the audience, yes. We could maybe do, you know, first part dinner, uh, second part like Lineborn or something. Give yourself a break, but it's a, it's, it's a long night. And uh, the question was, how do you think film and the showing of operas in movie theaters has, maybe it's affected your career. How do you see that affecting the art form going forward? That's a tough call, really. Um, I think it makes it more accessible to a lot more people. But it, it renders the whole format in, a, in a, a style that you would never experience in a theater. Um, I think that is really um, something that we have to remember, but it's something that is not in the experience of people who are you know, young you know, potential audience members for the theater. So um, I'm not so convinced it's gonna bring people into the opera houses more often than it will just keep them in the theaters. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I think it does give an interesting perspective in terms of backstage, um, you know, the different sort of uh, views from, from 
vantage points in the opera house and then you know interviewing with the singers i think this is all very good but it's it's a completely different way of experiencing opera. I think in a way it, it helps because it helps bridge the gap between Europe and the US because we can see here in America things from Covent Garden in Paris and Vienna and they can see things from the Met and this because it does very often feel like two worlds. What happens in America, whether it's a great success or a huge failure, if they're failure they might hear about it, but a huge success it's almost unnoticed in Europe, and vice versa. When I made my Met debut, I'd already sung at La Scala, Covent Garden, Paris, Vienna, all these other places. But in this country, until I had sung at the Met, I was nobody. And it was like, okay. And so you realize that it's just, it's just two, two you know, places that happen to be very far apart. Um, but I, do, I, I agree with everything that John just said. Um, I think that the Met is feeling it because the, the, the ticket sales are not great. Um, and people now, rather than take the train in, maybe get a hotel, have dinner, and buy their tickets, which might cost anywhere from 500 to 600 to $1,000, you can spend 40 for two tickets, eat your popcorn while you're watching it, and you don't get the full experience, but you probably get 80% of the experience. If I was going to be really honest, you get 80%. I, get to, I go to there to see my friends or to see Jonas Kaufman sing his first Otello in Covent Garden because I can go to the movie theater and theater. I can't get to London. So I think it does have its, 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 its positive aspects. And in, in, in Europe, there are Medici TV, uh, Arte TV, all these things get taped, shown in the movie, and then sold to these things so that you can watch them at home on your TV or you can on-demand it. Um, I think this is the way that things are going to go. I really do. I, I think opera is going to suffer a bit from it, but I think we just have to, we just have to morph into the next... Uh, the next uh, yeah. Well, we are going to wrap up, but I'm going to say thank you, Federico de Michaelis, Brian Himmel, John Relier, Alyssa Weilerstein, thank you. and thank you, you to much. all of you, to our audience. This has been the Aspen Music Festival and School's High Notes. Thank you for joining us. Make sure to tune in next week for another discussion with some of the best and brightest of the classical world. For more information on the Aspen Music Festival and School and the 2017 season, going on now through August 20th, visit www.aspenmusicfestival.com.